Welcome to a very special Australian federal election episode of The Third Wheel, a podcast from Herbert Smith Freehills on all things ESG. I'm Tim Stutt, partner in our Sydney office and Australian lead for ESG, and I'm joined today by Mel Debenham, Environment Planning and Communities Partner in our Perth office. Today we're going to be discussing a key battleground ahead of the federal election, climate change action. To help us break it down, we're joined by Graham Phelan, economist and ESG lead for Frontier Economics. Thanks for joining us today, Graham. We usually start these podcasts with the same question for each of our guests. What does ESG mean to you and why is it important? Great. So as an economist, when I started thinking about ESG, when I started looking at ESG, I would think of it, what it means for a country or a sovereign. Um, this is where my mind initially went. And it's really about assessing the sustainability of a country's underlying macroeconomic model. So we're thinking about how well can a country maintain its competitiveness over the long term against those ESG headwinds that we all know about. So this is things like youth unemployment, demographic aging, and climate change and natural disasters. Um, ESG is a really useful tool to take a longer term and broader focus on economic performance. So we're not just talking about next year's GDP results. Um, we're using a broader and deeper analysis to complement um, traditional macroeconomic views. Um, overall, I think ESG is a really useful frame for thinking about some of the biggest issues our society has. And these are those big issues that transcend election cycles, but still hopefully influence them. Thanks, Graham. And perhaps um, we'll start with society and the electorate. And I think it's fair to say the heightened expectations of the public around climate action. Look, it's it's certainly not the fringe issue that it might once have been. And from a personal perspective, um, it's a topic I think would be refreshing to see some bipartisan leadership. But leaving those personal views aside, um, that doesn't look to be the case. And there is a gap in party emission reduction targets for 2030. Um, the Libs are at 26 to 28% by 2030 versus ALP, 43%. Um, with all that context, do you think climate policy will influence voting in this election? I think there's definitely a clear sign of change in the electorate from the last election. Um, now, recent polling's showing six, and tens or six out of 10 Australians are agreeing with the statement that global warming is a serious and pressing problem that requires action. And there was also late polling in August 2021 showing that across all of the federal electorates in Australia that we had majority support for climate action. So I think I think we're reaching that tipping point um, where hopefully that will induce some bipartisan um, agreement and, and alignment on economic policy, which I think is the hard part. Um, one of the, some of the highlights, I think, in the civil society was the National Farmers Federation coming out and supporting net zero. And um, post COP26, I think the, the nationals were negotiating that carbon credit tax break and recognising that carbon farming is a legitimate means of smoothing farm income, seeing that this is a part of farming in the future and that we are looking forward in terms of how we can integrate climate action to traditional um, agricultural activities. Um, and I think the results of the South Australian election, while not primarily about climate, are showing us that incumbents don't always have a strong chance of winning anymore. We're moving out of that COVID period. We've been kept safe and there's been some really useful COVID policies um, which have satisfied the voters. Um, but now we're looking forward towards those next issues. Um, it's clear, though, that in Australian political history, that belief in climate change doesn't always translate into political support for climate action. 
But beyond the election, there really aren't many substitutes for effective government policy when it comes to fundamentally transforming our economy over the coming decades. We need a federal government that's engaged and forward-looking to get our institutions right, set targets, and provide the policy settings so that business can understand and manage risk and then channel investment on that basis. There seems to be increasing recognition post-COP26 that Australia um, has a way to go um, on policy, and most recently the UN Secretary-General named Australia as a holdout when it came to um, renewing or becoming more ambitious on our 2030 emissions reduction targets, um, which is very unusual um, to be called out by name from someone of that level of seniority. Just going to your point um, on Australia's targets, we do have the same 26 to 28% targets um, that we had in 2015. And something I sometimes reflect upon is the different layers of government in Australia. And when we look at each of the state targets and we build those up collectively, we see that Australia's targets possibly resemble something a little bit closer to 41% by 2030 if you took all of the, the states. Um, so while I think it's it's very interesting and it's important that we focus on what our targets are, there's possibly not as much disagreement on the targets as there is how we're going to actually meet them um, over the longer term. So while the, the coalition has a focus on technology-led economic evolution to cut emissions, capture those emissions and store them or offset them, there are alternatives um, to doing that. So economics tells us that a functioning that functioning markets are best for resource allocation and to have this, to have these functioning markets, you need to use a price system that reflects the true cost of society. And on this basis, a lot of the debate I've been having internally, but also with some of our stakeholders, is whether it's time to revisit carbon pricing in Australia. And we can think about how carbon pricing might be similar to the GST issue in our political past. The Australian electorate implicitly rejected carbon pricing in the 2013 election, but this doesn't mean that it's bound to reject carbon pricing forever. The electorate implicitly rejected the GST in the 1993 election, but accepted its introduction seven years later. So we're now nine years on from the 2013 election, and maybe we should think about revisiting the issue of carbon pricing. If all major political parties in Australia commit themselves to net zero in 2050, and we do have positive targets for 2030, why shouldn't the electorate be given the option to pursue this aim at least cost? And this is particularly relevant given, as we come out of COVID, we have a lot of other fiscal challenges um, that the country needs to address, like budget repair and significant structural reform on many fronts. So um, I think to your point, Mel, while the targets are very, very important, I think we also need to start a wider debate on how we're going to meet them. That's such an interesting point, Graham, on the pricing debate. And while you were speaking, I was thinking um, about the 1972 Whitlam campaign, It's Time. Um, I, I do think uh, there, there might be a different reaction to a carbon price in 2022 compared to previously, but but I suspect um, from a political perspective, it's still viewed as very much as dangerous territory. Um, and, and I guess that's because of the history of climate change not historically translating at the ballot box. Um, maybe we can pivot at this point and um, think, you know, if, if climate change um, isn't going to make that translation, what about the back-to-back -back natural disasters that we've seen in the past few years. What's your thought on that? I think these natural disasters are so significant and in people's minds that 
it, it will have to influence voting. But when I've been thinking through some of these issues, I wonder I wonder how it's going to influence voting. Um, it could create an emphasis towards climate mitigation and adaptation. So a recognition that there's a fundamental challenge here that we need to solve and what's the long-term solution. Or natural disasters could um, create an emphasis towards short-term economic security above all else. And and, and what, is that net, what is that tension and how does that interact with electoral cycles? Um, I find that really interesting. Um, against the back of your, your comment about back-to-back -back natural disasters, I think the IPC6 report recently came out, um, I think confirming what we what we already knew, but making it putting that scientific robustness behind it, that these one in five hundred year events are happening. They are happening more often, and um, those natural disasters like heat waves, droughts, and floods that we experience here in Australia, they're going to become more widespread as we get a two degrees outcome compared to a one point five degrees outcome. And despite the fact that some of these changes are really baked in at this point, it's not too late to to focus on mitigation. Um, but we also need to start thinking seriously about adaptation um, and how we also need to think about how we're going to push that through our political system with it, with, where it does have those electoral cycles. Um, and I think just earlier how I was talking about the different emphases that the responses could have or policy responses can have. Um, my overarching thought is that unless local politicians can propose climate policies with short-term economic benefits along the pathway, Increased natural disasters could actually limit government's capacities to pursue longer-term climate resilience. And I've done a little bit of digging around for some evidence for that, and I've found this paper, um, which I'm happy to share with you, um, which did some empirical breakdown of the May 2019 federal election, um, focusing in on New South Wales. And what they were looking at there is that tension between short-term economic support um, for households income security versus long-term um, planning and adaptation actions. Um, and what they've done is they've mapped federal voting electorates with um, who was exposed most to natural disasters in February 19. Oh, I'm sorry, in 2019. So you might recall um, in 2019, the Murray-Darling Basin was, was experiencing mass fish kills. I'll always remember those pictures through the news. Even now, I still remember those. And rainfall in that year was 40% below average. So those regional communities were really suffering and experiencing um, the effects of climate change. And broadly speaking, there were two sort of competing policy positions. On the one hand, we had the Labour and the Greens promoting, promote, promising significant cuts to greenhouse gas emissions to varying degrees. And Labour was also pledging to um, making pledges around renewable energy and offered farmers climate adaptation programs. Whereas the Liberal National Government largely offered economic relief for rural communities rather than pledging to mitigate climate change and future doubt, some of the minor parties complemented this with um, stronger local measures. So what the um, researchers here did is they looked at those policy positions and the voting patterns, and then they compared that, those electoral outcomes across the electorates and then mapped who was most exposed or who experienced the largest impacts of drought. And what they found was that the voters in those drought exposed areas prioritized individual economic security over the broader climate mitigation policies, um, which I think is a really interesting insight into um, how our long-term goals for climate transition and adaptation have to be um, supported by short-term supports, um, because I think the voters prioritize the latter over the former. 
And this pattern has been replicated in the US as well, where numerous studies have found that voters reward the incumbent presidential party for delivering disaster relief spending, but not necessarily for investing in disaster preparedness. Um, but I guess what does all this all mean for the, the 2022 election? Um, the future isn't set and this time may very well be different in the case of the, the floods that we've experienced in New South Wales and Southeast Queensland. Um, it seems like this time there's more of a, it's more of a combination of factors around climate change, government incompetence and poor planning sort of um, playing more of a role in the perception that the federal government was slow to act when it came to the flooding. Um, the federal emergency response fund wasn't necessarily utilized going into the going into the floods and even post floods around looking at that short term income support. There's very clear perceptions across the electorate that the federal support was um, demarcated by electoral boundaries or may have been partisan. And I think it sort of created um, a lot of challenges there about how we how we even adapt and how we respond to climate disasters. But things are sorry, you go to. I was just going to say, Graham, that's interesting. And it sort of it makes me reflect on um, perhaps a path forward being through some of the opportunities that climate change creates. And it makes me reflect on things like the Farmers Federation position um, in relation to climate change uh, and opening up carbon markets in a way where there are opportunities. Um, because actually that will help provide economic support. Um, in Absolutely. A, in a, yeah. yeah, in a way where perhaps, you know, it's not so much the we're able to, to bring some short-term benefits to people rather than uh, expecting expecting um, huge structural reforms on a long-term basis um, that people will vote for that when they have short-term pressures. I wonder if um, we could just um, shift gears a little bit and return return to your sort of comments around ESG and why ESG is important. Um, and in particular, a point there which I'd be keen to pick up was um, around inter international competitiveness. Um, and when we think about... Um, you know, expectations and government response to natural disasters, uh, you know, and whether or not um, it will result in an, uh, an outcome or influence the outcome of the election. We'd be really keen to hear your thoughts about policy impacts for business and investment as well, with a particular emphasis on on international competitiveness. Yeah, that's interesting. I think I think it's a given now that protecting the environment is central to protecting the economy. Um, and in that vein, the private sector is leading the government really um, in the absence of policy settings um, as they see the need to undertake the transition. They've come out strongly on net zero targets and there's very much a focus on getting investment flowing to emissions reductions. And um, while doing that, while doing that, also getting on advocating um, for the federal policy settings that are missing. Um, a driver behind that, I think, is that 14 of Australia's top 20 trading partners have pledged net zero emissions by 2050. So that's 83% of the exports out of this country to that group. Um, it is commercially significant. And if the markets we trade in have a clear and binding set of carbon policies, 
our entities will inevitably need to reduce carbon intensity to trade into those markets and be competitive on the world stage. Um, it's just a fact. The Business Council of Australia is actively promoting a transition to net zero and it's pushing for policy certainty and coordination. And I think that's crucial um, between governments, regulators, industry um, to accelerate investment um, as we move towards 2050. Just a few things there that I've pulled out that the Business Council of Australia supports. Um, it wants a stronger 2030 emissions reduction target um, in line with the Federal Labor Party of around 46 to 56. 50% by 2030. It also supports reducing the eligibility threshold covered by the safeguard mechanism from 100,000 tonnes of CO2 per year to 25,000 tonnes of CO2 per year. And it's also calling for support for internationally exposed hard to abate sectors that have key technology gaps such as agriculture. So this is sort of those, um, as you were mentioning, um, developing the carbon markets and developing the biodiversity um, conservation agreement markets that can help farmers move and change the way that they do business, but then also give them income diversification opportunities and off-farm income so that they can see the, the opportunities in a climate transition as well. Um, what I think is really important to point out from a competitiveness perspective is um, policy certainty and coordination is crucial because policy uncertainty, it's an invisible tax. It's raising the costs of doing business in Australia and it's um, deterring, it will deter investment and make it harder to engage and deliver the inevitable transition that we, we all know we're heading towards. That's interesting about investment. One thing that we did want to ask you was about financial regulators in Australia and whether or not we're keeping pace globally um, and whether or not uh, our financial regulators and, and financial regulation generally uh, is keeping up to protect the economy. What are your thoughts on that? I think our financial regulators are, are in step with international trends, but it's worth noting that it's a, it's a really fast-moving space and things are things are rapidly evolving. I don't think we're leading, but I think we're keeping up. Um, just in the last year, um, well, our financial regulators are responsible for managing exposures to the financial system, um, to those transitional and physical climate risks that sort of underpin, like you've mentioned the investment um, that we need. So some, a couple of highlights was APRA released its Prudential Practice Guide um, in November 2021. And that's a, a piece of guidance that's broadly consistent with the TCFD recommendations where you disclose your, your climate-related financial risks and you report them alongside your annual report in the spirit of um, transparency. And then when you measure a risk, you can act on it. Um, AFRA's also released the Climate Vulnerability Assessment Paper in September 2021, I believe, um, which is a tool for um, financial impacts of climate change on banks under a series of different um, but plausible climate scenarios. And I think this really, fundamentally, this reflects um, the standard that we're seeing internationally in financial regulation. And these steps are really needed for us, we will face we will face, like you've mentioned, reduced access to capital markets, which will which could impact on everything from interest rates on home loans and small business loans to the financial viability of large scale infra infrastructure projects, and that has been acknowledged by the um, Central Financing Authority of of the Australian Commonwealth as well that these ESG risks could add, you know, a material amount of basis points to our um, government debt as well as the cost of private private lending in the economy. 
I thought it would be interesting to also note, though, just to demonstrate how fast-moving the space is, that um, just on the 21st of March, uh, a few days ago, the US SEC proposed a new rule that all, all publicly listed firms, not just those financial firms, would be subject to enhanced and standardised climate-related disclosures provided um, by those public companies. And again, it's similar to the TCFD recommendations, but what's interesting about this move is that they'd be mandatory in nature. So while we might see varying levels of disclosure under voluntary frameworks where TCFD-type disclosures are recommended, if we have a mandatory setting, um, it's much easier for investors to understand and take a, a broad survey of what's going on in the market and then build portfolios and make investment decisions based on that. I think that might be the big question for financial regulators in Australia over the next year or two is, is are we moving towards mandatory disclosures rather than just voluntary guidance? Graham, we'll close our discussion now and we've we've covered some great ground and, and you've you've um You've finished that question um, with a big question on on the future of financial regulation in Australia, but uh, I'd be interested in any final thoughts you've got on key economic factors that will be important to this election. Um, one that immediately springs to mind for me is the rising cost of living. It's a really interesting question. Um, I think in 2021, COVID-19 and the response to COVID-19 from the government was a major driver of inflation. We saw global bottlenecks and disrupted just-in-time supply chains sorry, confronted by strong demand, um, re resulting in higher rates of inflation. Um, there was also one depend by government stimulus and a surge in spending on goods rather than services. Within the monetary community at the time, much of the debate among economists and also policymakers was whether this inflation was transitory or Acknowledging that there was a spike of inflation, but is it going to persist across time and do we need to change our monetary policy or interest rate settings as a result? Um, there seemed to be a consensus in 2021 that it was transitory, but it seems like we've, we've, we've hit yet another short-term shock. Um, being Ukraine, um, the war in Ukraine and the oil prices, where we're seeing petrol prices of $2.20 in some parts of the country, and that's up from $1.30, around $1.30 last year. Um, and that's going to flow through the system again with higher cost of living, and that's going to be very important, um, an important electoral issue, I'm sure. Um, but I think the point is, is that these, our domestic inflation is being driven by international pressures um, that are largely outside of our control. And I think this will have some interesting implications for the federal budget um, coming Tuesday and also the subsequent election. So there's talk of the taxpayer-funded payments of maybe $400 um, for qualifying citizens and then some holiday so either addressing the fuel cost either for an excise holiday or maybe no indexation on the fuel tax going forward but i think the challenge is is now these are sort of short-term stimulus measures which can compound inflation and then lead to interest rate rises it would be a disaster scenario if the federal budget was announced we have these stimulus measures come out and then the rba raises rates sooner than expected in response um it will be a disaster possibly for the election. Um, I think I think that challenge will be will be going through the government's minds at the moment. I think there's also a view about whether if we can give relief now through through subsidy and transfers, 
but whether that's going to foreshadow austerity later as we move towards budget repair and we need to find the funds to um, fulfill the other priorities that the government has. Um, again, just maybe when we were talking about ESG at the very beginning, talking about short-term and long-term competitiveness, I think as an economist, I always come back to the long-term and thinking about productivity enhancing reform as a way of lifting productivity growth and supporting vulnerable citizens so that declining living standards can be reversed. Um, so we don't need to necessarily focus on short-term fuel excise holidays, but we can focus on long-term structural reform um, that can help Australia play its part in global issues like the climate crisis, um, but also help the electorate enjoy the benefits and the opportunities in the transition, such as through coordinated energy policy or carbon farming in the regions, for example. Graham, thank you so much for joining us um, and, you know, lending your economic expertise to the myriad of issues um, in the ESG space that are being thrown up um, in this election. Thank you very much. We usually close out each episode of the pod with an interesting ESG fact and perhaps picking up on points you raised around stimulus and short-term economic security above all else. Um, I wanted to talk about beer and a, and a potentially contentious um, election promise. For some reason, beer always plays a not insignificant role in Australian elections, whether it be the pub test for particular issues or the leader being someone you'd happily pull up a stool and have a drink with. The Australian Hotels Association met with the Treasurer recently to discuss um, a push for $150 million of tax relief on draft beer, beer being poured in pubs. Um, and the association, association is one of many voices calling for action on this front. Now, to put this in context um, for consumers, uh, this sort of tax cut would represent around 30 cents off every $7.50 schooner of beer if it was to be passed on. It's not intended to be permanent, rather temporary, um, and a measure to help venues recover from pandemic restrictions. And we all know um, what a hit the hospitality industry has had um, as a result of covid However, not everyone enjoys a frothy, and obviously alcohol consumption and related harm is a serious issue, including in the context of the pandemic um, and, and a divisive issue. It's food for thought when the ABS's latest National Health Survey indicated one in four adults aged 18 years and over exceeded the Australian alcohol consumption guidelines, and men are more likely than women to have exceeded the limits in the guidelines. Um, over a quarter of men um, were reported as consuming more than 10 standard drinks a week. So in addition to the health concerns around this, this sort of tax cut, the beer discount has also been coined as sexist by distillers, spirit manufacturers and distributors, pointing out that discounts would mainly benefit men, the primary consumers of beer. All will be revealed on this and other tax cuts later in March and Tuesday, in fact, as Graham mentioned, once decisions on the budget are announced by the PM. If you'd like to follow this outcome and for more election insights, please visit the HSF Election Hub on our website. As always, thank you for listening and Tim and I look forward to you joining us for the next episode of The Third Wheel. In the spirit of reconciliation, Herbert Smith Freehills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia 
and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.